Terry and Emily. Very nicely done. We uh, have opportunities everywhere we go to brighten the corner where we are. And that could be at uh, home in our neighborhood or in the workplace, different places we go. We live in a world today that is uh, very discouraged and despairing. And sometimes it's uh, just engaging the cashier or someone uh, next to us in line in a conversation. And then it's just amazing sometimes how one thing leads to another. And uh, I know for, for me, I, I often get questioned, what do you do? And I say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And uh, I can tell by their reaction uh, sometimes uh, just how, how that's going to be received. And, uh, but that opens up doors sometimes. Uh, just uh, saying hi and asking a question uh, to a cashier. They, they have sometimes a lot of tough customers that come through their line. Uh, maybe at the drive through window. Uh, I get very disappointed sometimes at fast food restaurants. Uh, we always have to check the bag before we drive out of the parking lot because almost invariably we have something that's missing. But uh, just sometimes saying something nice, engaging them in conversation, asking maybe about something that uh, they're, uh, they're wearing or whatever, and sometimes that just opens up doors and has an opportunity for us to, to brighten the corner and maybe even as that song talks about, give us opportunity to even go further and share the gospel and the, share the love of the Lord uh, with them. John chapter 15, John chapter 15, and we'll come back to this great passage as Jesus has been finishing up the Last Supper, the Lord's table, that Passover meal, probably as the Galileans would often observe the Passover on uh, the night before the, the Judeans would, as primarily Galileans, Jesus himself being from Galilee, they celebrate the Passover meal that we know as the Last Supper, the Lord's Table, out of which we have our communion, uh, one of our ordinances of the church. And now as they have finished up that meal, they are beginning to head toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Now we don't know uh, exactly uh, how this discourse, how this, this sermon, this teaching took place. Maybe it was on the road, maybe it was as they were gathering their things, maybe it was at the Garden But this is in those final hours before Jesus is betrayed by Judas and taken uh, to court and eventually to to be crucified. And he is giving them these these lessons, teaching them these truths. And obviously by the inspiration of God and then preserved in his word for us today, these truths are so extremely relevant, continue to be relevant generation after generation. God's word is always relevant. And we read here in John 15 and verse 18, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Hate is a strong term. It is a term today that is so misrepresented. And it's, it's almost like the word love that is so misrepresented and wrongly defined. Now hate... Hate can just simply be a disagreement with someone over something as basic and as biological as being male or female. Hate is a word that is now used to describe even those who have a disagreement over something as basic as the conception of human life, that a human being is 
growing and developing in a mother's womb from the moment of conception. I've dealt with students and parents in being a school principal for many years, and I would often have to explain to students just because the teacher corrects you in class after you've talked for the 1500th time and disrupted the class and thrown the spitball and whatever else that you did to disrupt the class, they finally caught you, they finally came down on you, they finally said something, it doesn't mean the teacher hates you. They're tired of your shenanigans, they called you down for it, now straighten up. I've had to deal with students, had to deal with parents who want to defend the rebellious behavior of their children and they try to turn and twist and misrepresent and the teacher doesn't like my kid the teacher's picking on my kid the teacher is out to get my kid and you are too because you're the principal and you're defending that teacher and on and on it goes and sometimes they make it they make it sound like that we hate that student or we hate that individual simply because we disagree with their behavior or we want to correct their behavior or we disagree with their lifestyle because of what God's word says. God's word is true. God's word has declared certain things as right and certain things as wrong. And we continue to stand for the truth of the word of God as we sang this morning as Christian soldiers, we go forth to war, a spiritual battle. And Jesus is in the midst of that He knows what he's about to experience. He knows what his disciples are going to experience beyond the cross and the resurrection, a measure of which they've already experienced. And Jesus comes right out and he says that if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. World, the world hates a fruitful believer. We just spent the the first 17 verses of this chapter talking about the fruitful believer. A believer will bear fruits. We went through several different kinds of spiritual fruit last week in last Sunday's message. I won't rehearse all of those. But the world is opposed to, the world hates a fruitful believer. What is the world, though? What is the world? We use this term a lot. It's a biblical term. We have to understand what the world is and understand it from a biblical perspective. Of course, the world sometimes in the Bible, the world is just simply the physical world. It is the ground on which we walk. It is the elements by which we make different buildings and roads and the different forms of technology and talk about science and all of the different aspects of the physical world. Sometimes the world is referring to the people of the world, just in general, the population, the people. And sometimes the Bible will speak of the world in terms of the population, the people who make up the world. But we understand that in this context, and often throughout Scripture, and we'll look at several verses this morning, there is a system, a spiritual system of the world. And this word world will be speaking of that system that is inspired and organized by Satan himself and that is opposed to all that God is and his word, his son Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God's people. Ephesians 6 
In verse number 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We understand that we have the world, the flesh, and the devil as our enemies. And Satan uses the world, and he uses our flesh to tempt us to disobey God, to violate God's commands, to go our own way and do our own thing. Satan inspires and organizes the world. He is considered, he is called the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. It's not that he has sovereign rule. Of course, God is still sovereign, and Satan is only allowed to do what God allows him to do. We saw that very clearly in the book of Job, as Satan had to get permission to even affect Job's possessions and his children, his livestock, and even his own health. Satan is under the authority of God. And I don't have uh, time this morning to get into all of uh, the, 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 the seeming contradictions that come up with that. How could God allow evil? God overrules. God uses. God uh, can overcome any kind of evil. And those who repent of their sin, they can be forgiven of their sin, of their evil. And by placing their faith and trust in Christ and turning from their sin, there is forgiveness with God. But we understand that God overrules sin and God overcomes sin and even uses sin, but he does not tempt us to sin. In no way. That would violate the very holiness and the character of God. But Satan does have a measure of influence in this world in which we live. It is clear. It is obvious. It's in the headlines. It's in the pop culture. It's all over the place. It is clear that Satan has an evil influence on this world. And there is a worldly system that is opposed to God. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, I already referenced this. Satan is referred to as the God of this world who has blinded the minds of them that would believe. What is Satan trying to do? He's trying to keep people from turning to Christ. He's trying to ruin the testimonies of those who have trusted Christ. He is trying to, and regularly working hard at blinding the minds of those that would believe. Satan wants to keep men in darkness. And Satan isn't always so obvious as a red costume with a pitchfork and horns. Satan is often... Much more subtle than that. He has wiles. He has schemes. He's a liar. He's a deceiver seeking to destroy, to murder. And he often uses subtle means, temptations that take and twist and distort even God-given desires. He often perverts something that is good and twists it into something evil. It seems like no matter what man develops or invents man also finds a way to turn it to evil and corrupt it that is the influence of satan it's not that we aren't responsible for our sin of course we are i think it was some old comedian that used to say the devil made me do it trying to shift the blame as if it's not my responsibility no it is our responsibility we when we are tempted have a choice to make I think it was Martin Luther who said, who said we, we can't 
stop a bird from flying over our head, but we can certainly stop the bird from making a nest in our hair. And there are temptations all around. Satan is using the world to influence and to tempt. But we have to make a choice to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might to put on the whole armor of God because we wrestle against spiritual power, spiritual wickedness, and spiritual darkness. We're in a spiritual warfare. So we must resist the world. But what is the world? 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 describe the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh. This is idolizing pleasure. This is an inordinate, distorted desire for pleasure. God has given us all things richly for us to enjoy. God has blessed us with many different forms of pleasure, of joy, of happiness. But Satan twists and distorts many of our God-given desires and perverts them into evil. We idolize them. We make entertainment and pleasure the God of our lives sometimes. We see that in our culture that is just completely drunk on entertainment. It just seems to consume every aspect of our lives sometimes, where we are literally consumed by screens that we consistently, just constantly have to go through and swipe and click. And market, marketers, they, they know this. They know the pop-ups. They know the way in which we are intuitive as a child, as a two-year-old can sit there on a screen and the flashing lights and the, the movement, they understand they can captivate a two-year-old. And in, in, in being in education for many years, I would often come across studies of how screens are affecting brains, developing brains. It's scary. And the blue light effect and how it even affects our sleep if we spend too much time on screens before we go to sleep and how it can affect our, 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 our deep sleep and our REM sleep. It's incredible. Satan knows how to get glowing rectangles to captivate us and to give us that constant dopamine high, that thrill that lasts eight seconds and moves on to another eight-second thrill, or that 30-second commercial. Do, do we realize that there are businesses that will spend millions of dollars on a 30-second commercial for the Super Bowl tonight? Did we realize this was the unofficial holiday of the United States called the Super Bowl? It's almost recognized as a holiday, just about, right? Some people take Monday off of work because they are partying late into the night because of the Super Bowl. Some of them don't even watch the game. Uh, It's just all about the party, right? Sadly. But there will be a probably hundreds of businesses that will spend millions of dollars, much less the people who will spend thousands of dollars to have a seat at an entertainment venue to watch a game that some of them, they don't even care for either team. They don't really pay any attention. I'm not an Eagles fan, and and I'm certainly uh, not a Kansas City Chiefs fan, okay? But I'll probably watch some of the game tonight. But there are people who spend thousands of dollars to sit and watch a game and they don't really care for either team. And the millions of dollars that will go into a 30-second commercial because they know that that little bit of entertainment, that little bit of pleasure will affect what people do, what they buy, how they act, because they'll see that commercial for those Cheetos 
and they'll want to go buy a bag of Cheetos. They will see that commercial for that insurance and they'll want to save 15 minutes or 15 percent in that 15 minutes that it takes to save that 15 percent. And we can quote those slogans and we can quote those statements because we hear them and we see them. Satan knows that. Satan knows how to use the world. There's educators and there's intellectuals who often have very bad ideas. They get them out of the classroom, they get them into the culture, and then Satan uses the entertainers to take those ideas and to then make them popular in the culture. We realize that a lot of the bad ideas that are now in our culture, that are sung, that are actually in now our cartoons, because they're trying to influence our children, they started in some classroom, in some office, in some educator's office, or in some intellectual philosopher's office, or in some article, and now it's gotten into the popular culture because some entertainer or even some corporation now is saying this is the way to live. This is the thing to do. This is how you can have it all be popular or whatever. Satan knows what he's doing. He's a deceiver. He's a liar from the beginning seeking to destroy. So sure, he loves to use the cartoons and the corporations and he loves to use all of the different avenues that he can in the world system to deceive to manipulate, and eventually to destroy. So what is the world? The world is the lust of the flesh, idolizing pleasure, the lust of the eyes, idolizing possessions. He who dies with the most stuff wins. Do we not live in a covetous culture? Gotta have. Gotta have more. We're never happy from one Christmas to the next, from one birthday to the next. The thing that we got last year is already boring. We want something else. We've all been there and done that. Hopefully we've disciplined ourselves to to not put ourselves in debt trying to keep up with the Joneses or the Kardashians or whoever it is that's out there that people are trying to keep up with, sadly. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Idolizing power. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We have people who are driven by power. They are bloodthirsty for power. Do we not see that all around the world? Totalitarian regimes, dictatorships. Even right here in America, we have a constitutional democratic republic and we see power being taken from all kinds of different areas and being consolidated. We see what Satan is doing. Even in a constitutional democratic republic like what we have today, here in America that we've been blessed with for all these years. We see the thirst for power and the way in which there are so many people trying to block and check to consolidate power, thinking that if they can have the power, they can make everything a utopia. And we know that's a lie, because who ultimately wants the power? Satan himself, who is often behind this system of trying to have all the power. And why does government hate Christians and go against Christians? We've seen it throughout human history. Why is it that a dictator, a totalitarian leader, why is it that people in power, why do they hate Christians? They hate Christ. 
but they hate God's authority. Everywhere we go throughout human history, we watch it right now. You can see it in communist China. You can see it right here in America. You can see the spirit of the Antichrist already at work. And government doesn't want any higher power. And God is that highest power. And government hates God, and so it goes after the Christians. Oh, and it'll masquerade in all of its different forms, but ultimately is an attack upon the authority of God and his word and his son, Jesus Christ, which ultimately comes down to an attack upon God's people. The world hates a fruitful believer. We see it right here at Berean Baptist Church. There's constantly, as blessed as we are by the grace of God, We don't ever want to take that for granted because Satan, I know for a fact, I experience it every week, that Satan is attacking this church. He's attacking me, he's attacking my wife, he's attacking my kids, he's attacking our deacons and their wives, he's attacking all of the male leadership in this church. I know I experience it regularly, that's why we covet your prayers, That's why we need your prayers. That's why we must remain faithful to the word of God. That's why we have so many opportunities for us to be exposed to the word of God because this is the power of God unto salvation and it is the armor of God that helps us to resist the devil. And if we don't experience it, and I don't mean this in some mystical way, but if we don't experience the resistance If we don't feel that and experience that, then probably something is wrong with our Christianity. Something is not right in our walk with God. Because I know on a regular basis, as we see God do great things, as we see God bless and as we see God work and we see lives changed and we see missionaries that we are supporting, Satan's right there trying to find a chink in the armor, trying to attack, trying to get brother against brother, trying to find something that he can get us upset with each other and divide us up or to sneak in some false teaching or whatever it might be. He's vigilant. He's like a roaring lion. We have to be vigilant because he's vigilant like a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. He never rests. He's constantly looking for a way to deceive, to cause doubt, to destroy, to discourage, to divide, to create discord. We have to be on guard all the time. And the world hates us. We have a security team because there are outward pressures, outward threats from the outside. We know if a conservative Supreme Court justice can have protesters, including one that wants to murder him, and the government does nothing about it, if crisis pregnancy centers and other, and, and, and other churches can be vandalized and there can be shooters in a church building, then we have to be reasonable and use common sense to have protection in place, and we're thankful for that. But there's also the inward attacks because of the flesh and because we're influenced by the world in so many ways. He wants to destroy us from within and from without So the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It's the pride of life. But we also, and I'm going to give you five just quickly here, identifications of the world or characteristics of the world. First of all, the world is an enemy of God. We've described the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, all of those are used 
to oppose God and his word and his people, his church. The world is an enemy of God. James 4 and verse number 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Strong words. A friend of the world is the enemy of God. So that clearly implies that the world is an enemy of God. Even in our unsaved states, we are opposed to God, Ephesians chapter 2. Secondly, not only is the world an enemy of God, but the world has a willing ignorance of God. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. The world triumphs its intellect and its degrees and its philosophies and its education and all of the ideas. The world has a wisdom that knows not God. So, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of which is of God. There is a spirit of the world. Sometimes in, in, in the epistles of John, it's described as the spirit of the Antichrist. That is the world in willing ignorance and opposition to God, trying to suppress the truth, as Romans 1 talks about. Knowing the truth, but suppressing it, that eventually results in a reprobate mind. Are we not seeing reprobate-mindedness in our culture today, where a bill in the state of Oklahoma to protect kids from mutilation, and there are ravenous people with reprobate mindsets protesting in the halls of the state house in Oklahoma as the governor declares that we're going to protect our children against mutilation because. There's this false idea that a boy can become a girl and a girl can become a boy. Or there is no such thing as gender or whatever the nonsense is. That's the world. Suppressing the truth, denying reality, masquerading fantasy as reality. And it all comes back to what Satan has wanted to do from the Garden of Eden, from when he got kicked out of heaven, where he wanted to be God. He wanted to have the power. And he tricked and deceived Adam and Eve. And he said, ye shall be as gods. God has kept something good from you. And God is not allowing you to live the way you should live. And it results in this expressive individualism and this self-autonomy. And we live for ourselves. And Satan is all about self it's a suppression of the truth. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The wisdom of this world. The, the wisdom of this world, these wrong ideas, this stinking thinking, these wrong philosophies, these false teachings, they are foolishness with God. God calls them moronic. The very thing that I am doing right now that you are sitting and observing and watching and hearing 
The world would call what I'm doing and what you are doing, what we are doing today, they would call this foolishness. But God says, no, the wisdom of this world is foolishness. The false ideas, the wrong philosophies, the wicked ideas that are so pervasive in our culture, that's foolishness. That's the willing ignorance. So the world is an enemy of God. The world has a willing ignorance of God. And thirdly, we see that the world is condemned. The world is condemned. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 32. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 32 speaks of the condemnation of the world. 1 John 2 says the world passeth away and the lusts thereof. The world is condemned because the world is bent in its sin. It's corrupted by sin. And sin bringeth forth death. Condemnation. Fourthly, the world brings death, as I just referenced. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. The sorrow of the world worketh death. There is a despair in our culture. There is a sorrow and a sadness that is without hope in our culture today. Suicide rates among young people that are out of control. A drug epidemic where fentanyl is killing more people, I forget what the statistics are, but the, 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 the suicide rates or the overdose rates just from fentanyl alone are astronomical. And there's enough fentanyl, from what I'm hearing, in the United States to kill every single last one of us. Despair. And it comes across the border in droves and makes its way all throughout North America, killing people left and right. Satan loves to murder and destroy. The world brings death. Euthanasia, assisted suicide, right to die, the maid law in Canada, where now if you have a bad back, they'll come to you and say, I know that you're in pain. Have you considered ending your life? It's all over the place. The Netherlands has some of the worst assisted suicide laws in the entire world where basically you can have a bad day and they'll give you a pill to end every day sadly that's the culture of death that the world brings that satan brings galatians 4 and verse 3 talks about the bondage of the world oh i know i get so tired of it all you legalistic christians all you want to do is just keep us as a bunch of prudes and not have any fun well i had a great time last night it didn't involve any alcohol. Didn't it didn't involve any sensual dancing. Didn't involve any vibrating music, a disco ball, or some pulsating music. Didn't involve any of that, did it? We had a great time to the glory of God. We had a wonderful time. We walked out of here and nobody felt guilty. Maybe there were some few things that were said that were <laughs> a little suspect. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, everything was, everything was fine. It was above board. We just some, just some good nature teasing. We walked out of here and nobody, nobody felt guilty. Nobody, nobody was asking, hey, could, do you need a designated driver? We didn't have that last night. We didn't have some wife apologizing for her husband because he's acting like some drunk himself. I listened to a tech podcast and the lady got on, this is on national, this is a national podcast, technology podcast, and she named a certain drink that her husband likes. 
And she, I, won't, I won't say the name for the drink. Um, it's a particular type of alcohol, but she called it something else. She called it a vulgar name because every time her husband drinks two of those, he turns into, and she called him a vulgar name. She said, I don't even want to be around when he drinks two of these because, and I'm, again, I'm using my own language, because he turns into such a jerk. He's so awful toward me. I don't even want to be around him just with two of these drinks. That's the world. That's what the world says is fun and entertaining and exciting. And then the church tries to mimic that. And it's nonsense. The world brings death. The world, Galatians 1 and verse 4, is described as evil. 2 Peter 1 and verse 4 refers to the corruption of the world. 2 Peter 2 and verse 20 refers to the pollutions of the world. And 2 John and 1 7 talks about the deception or the deceivers of the world. The world is an enemy of God. The world has willing ignorance of God, suppresses the truth. The world is condemned. The world brings death. And the world hates Christians. Why? Because they hate our Lord. Jesus said it in verse 18, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. The apostles were described in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9. Paul said that the world describes the apostles, Christians in general, as a spectacle unto the world. As the clowns, the jesters, the stupid people. That's how the world thinks of us as Christians. You don't have to go very far. New York Times, Washington Post, most of the mainline internet sites mock and blaspheme our God and our Savior. The Grammys mocked and blasphemed our God and Savior and worshipped Satan. And yet there are Christians, Christian musicians, who want the approval of the Grammy Club on their music and received awards. Did they sit through the Satan worship concert? I just couldn't help but wonder what Christian belongs at something like that. But we are a spectacle unto the world. The apostles for preaching the gospel, Christians for standing up for what is right, for just being Christians... In verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 4, Christians, the apostles in particular, are described as the filth, the filth of the world. That's how the world describes us. But that's because they hated our Lord first. They hated him first. As Christians, we read in Galatians 6 and verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. One of the problems with the church today is there aren't very many Christians who are crucified unto the world. They're saved unto the world, sadly. And many of them who call themselves Christians, I wonder if they really are if the world has such influence on them. Professional athletes that name the name of Christ at the beginning of their career until they get really popular and then distance themselves from anything that's moral and biblical and won't take any stand for anything that's right after they get their popularity and sign their big contracts. But the world, Paul says, is crucified unto me and I unto the world. 
I have a feeling that there are a lot of us as believers that need to be doing some daily crucifixions. Paul said, I die daily. He died to his flesh, but he also died to the world. The world's not going to have any attraction. It's not going to allure me. It's not going to be what is my desire. It's not going to be my focus. My affections are on things above. Paul told us to set our affections on things above, to seek first the kingdom of God. And yet we have so many believers who seem to be more about the approval of the world and enamored by all the world's doings. And if we can just sanctify as the world shifts even further to the very brimstone of hell itself, and the smoke of hell itself, it seems, is now as the world is right on that precipice, it seems, at times, we have Christians who just shift a little bit further over. And it's just unbelievable the things that Christians are excusing and allowing because the world has not been crucified unto them. Romans 12 and verse 2, we're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to let the world take us like a cookie cutter and press us into its mold. My mom used to make jello. Did you ever have jello in the different uh, molds and the different caricatures? And mom would make the jello, and then she'd take that thing and flip it upside down, and there were all these little characters, dinosaurs and cartoon characters. And you know, the world has been taking us as Christians and has been molding us and shaping us. But the Bible says in Romans 12, not to be conformed to this world. Don't let the world mold you. Don't let the world shape you into its mold. And then in Philippians 2, in verse 15, we're to shine as lights in the world. The world hates the fruitful Christian. We've just described what the world is and defined it, and we've given five characteristics of the world. But here's Jesus Christ, our Savior, and he says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, wait a second here. Christ was sinless. He did nothing that would ever justify man's hatred of him. And yet man hated him. His life was one of compassion. His life was one of sacrifice and giving. Countless acts of selflessness. Look down at verse 25 of John 15. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. This is a quote from the book of Psalm, book of Psalms. And I believe it was in uh, Psalm uh, 35, maybe, or Psalm 39, and also in Psalm 69. Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. That's where this is quoted from. The world hated me without a cause. Why was he hated? He exposed the sinfulness of man. He exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, but he exposed our sin. He confronted us with his holiness and shined light on our sinfulness. John 3 and verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He shined the light of the gospel, the light of God. He shined his lights on the world and exposed our sin. But he came to save us from that sin. 
Verse 19 of John 3, just a couple verses later, and this is the condemnation. This is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, I'm not trying to get carried away here, okay? But if you watch the Super Bowl tonight, maybe you've already seen the commercials. But there's a, a movement now, and it's on the commercials, Jesus gets us. And I heard a little bit about this movement, and I'm not trying to condemn everybody that's a part of it. There's some good people that are a part of this movement. And the idea is to get the unsaved world to like Jesus. Because we as Christians have been too harsh. We as Christians have been too rude. And you know what? We are sinners. And we do. And there are times where we aren't as nice as we should be. Or we don't live like we should be. And we're hypocritical or whatever. There's a hundred ways I realize that we can be criticized. But the movement is about making Jesus identifiable, relevant with different groups of people around the world. So Jesus was a refugee, as one of the commercials says. And the whole movement is Jesus gets us. And the whole philosophy is if we can just get the unsaved world to like Jesus, then they'll accept the gospel. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be overly condemning. But I just don't see that as the method of evangelism the mode of evangelism that Christ himself prescribed that he called the apostles to that we saw or we see in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. He was sinless. They, they didn't like him because he was a carpenter's son. They didn't like him because he was from Galilee. On and on we could go. They made up stories about him and his birth. We could go throughout history and we could see all the different things that have been said about Jesus. Are we just supposed to masquerade a Jesus that is nicey-nice, offers a good customer service, identifies with all the oppressed groups of the world, and after everybody kind of likes Jesus, then we can deal with the sin issue? Is that how we're to evangelize? Jesus came and was perfectly sinless, compassionate, selfless, working miracles, healing, declaring himself as God, proclaiming himself as the Savior of the world. Never did anything wrong to anybody at any time. And the world still hated him. And he was still taken and crucified and murdered on a bloody cross for us. I'll see a commercial like that if I watch the Super Bowl tonight, and I understand that there might be some people who follow the website, and they get attached to some Bible study, and they might actually hear the gospel. And it's not that we go around and we be rude and we be obnoxious. It's not that we go out and we are cantankerous and that we think that evangelism is going about like personality of a brillo pad and rubbing everybody the wrong way and then you know when you really get offended then i'll give you the gospel it's not that we're to be like that but we're to declare the truth we're to declare the truth about who christ is we are to 
give the whole counsel of God. Yes, we're to give the gospel. We have the Romans road. We have those key verses. But we have to continually bring people back to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. And that Jesus Christ came because we as sinners needed a Savior. And only he can save. And that means we have to keep coming back to the word of God. We must keep faithfully proclaiming clearly, boldly, the truth of the word of God. For the word of God alone is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1 and verse 16. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The word of God is like a fire or a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, Jeremiah 23 and verse 29. It is described as a two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And we have to even please God by the foolishness of preaching, knowing that God will, through the foolishness of preaching, save them that believe. And remind ourselves once again from Romans 10 and verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our lives must not detract from or bring reproach on the name of Christ and his word. But we must declare the realities of who Jesus is. Understanding that the world may bring persecution. And we're seeing that more and more even right here in America where we never thought it would happen. And even by misgendering now, whatever that means, even by misgendering, people are losing their jobs and getting kicked out of clubs and memberships. Ridiculous things like that. But we keep coming back, keep coming back to the truth of who Christ is and that Christ came to save. Save whom? Sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as we declare the message of our brokenness and our sinfulness, we declare the message of Jesus Christ, that he saves and he alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this tremendous passage. Lord, that hits right at home and deals with the realities of Jesus Christ and the realities of what we might face or may be already experiencing to some degree. Lord, we don't seek persecution, we don't desire persecution, but we know it may come.